Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, October 11th, 2021. Happy Columbus Day. I'm John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Guys, uh, Democrats are beginning to panic and liberals are beginning to panic about Joe Biden's standing. Um, uh, our friends at The Bulwark, uh, Sarah Longwell and uh, Jonathan V. Last, have a podcast out that details, and then there are a bunch of op-eds and pieces um, this morning detailing the results of Sarah's uh, uh, focus group in Pennsylvania with Biden voters and voters in general, all of whom basically are giving Biden low marks for everything in art and have decided that they're not blaming Republicans for problems that they think are happening on Biden's watch and and that are Biden's responsibility. And what strikes me as interesting about this is the general sense that Biden's troubles um, are deepening because of COVID. Uh, Whereas you would think over the last two months that the sole issue in Washington was the passage of these two, you know, these two bills and that um, voters are look at that and just say, there's, you know, it's classic Washington fighting going on. Why aren't we out of COVID yet? And it raises a very interesting point, which is that they knew running for president that the sole issue was COVID. Uh, They started the presidency and understood that the sole issue was COVID they decided in April or whatever that they were going to declare victory over COVID. And then they decided they wanted to move on to other topics that they enjoyed more or that they thought were more forward leaning or future looking or whatever. How could you make a mistake like that? Any, I mean, I just, if you think through it, you're like, what an unforced error. Like you took your eye off the ball. Just, why aren't you having daily briefings? I don't even know what. I'm just saying, like, even if you don't know what to do about the Delta variant, it doesn't really matter. You make it clear to people that what you're interested in isn't what they're interested in and that what they're interested in isn't getting resolved and that what you're interested in isn't really something that seems to have an effect on their daily lives. Well, is it in your view, just talking about it, just seeming focused on it, having this as your chief priority, regardless of what you aim to do there, because there is probably two minds on this issue. One is that you should be applying as heavy a hand as possible to mitigate the effects of this disease and get us a back to normal, which I don't even believe is the ideal on the, on the part of this cohort or B that you should be um, prioritizing the resumption of the status quo ante normal life and accepting the existence of this virus as just a new normal. Uh, those, you know, those two things are in direct conflict and, and Joe Biden is clearly favoring one approach over the other, but you're going to alienate some people no matter what you choose. So I don't, I don't know if it's just talking about it on a daily basis would somehow alleviate these concerns. But he does kind of seem his administration, at least with the messaging, which we've talked about many times, does seem to want it both ways. Right. They did the let's rip our masks off if you're vaccinated, no mask. They did this whole rollout, which angered some of their own public health officials who who were hyper cautious and wanted everyone to be masked forever. So there was a lot of internal dissension. And then they 
told everyone they had to mask up again without a lot of good communication. But the problem is, I I think that he has avoided talking about COVID until he uses it as an excuse. So when the bad job numbers came out last week, he blamed the Delta variant. He's like, well, we couldn't really predict. It's probably the Delta variant effect. So it's a useful tool for him as an excuse making device. But Americans are still looking at this and going, what what do the next six months to a year look like for us? I just want to say, I, I, I think they came up against their own false expectation here. The Biden came to office with this idea that there was something that a that a different president could do to change the trajectory of of everything, and then it was like, well, okay, what's that thing? What 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 what's happened? I mean, yeah, yeah, you can you know make the vaccine as available as possible, which was already happening. Uh, so he yeah, he continued to do that, and then there was kind of nowhere to go with it except to sort of appear everywhere with a mask, scold everyone, and and they, they kind of ran into a dead end, I think. Well, I well, think... No, it, I mean, they imposed mask mandates on the entire country, basically, via OSHA, which the constitutionality of which has yet to be uh, adjudicated by courts, and I'm very suspicious of it. But, I mean, that's a big mitigation measure that surely more people will appreciate than not based on the polling that we've seen. But a lot of people don't appreciate it and don't abide by it and are experiencing economic hardships as a result of it. Yeah. But if you listen again, if you listen to the focus group that, that I, you know, that I I mentioned at the, at the top of the podcast, uh, they're not, they're not the people who are mad about vaccine mandates. This is a much more general, much hazier thing, which is Biden said, I would get the virus under control. It's October 11th. The virus is not under control. He said this a year ago. It's now a year. Yeah, maybe, you know, ruefully, life experience and history and the challenge of dealing with it have proved that that promise was naive. But it doesn't mean he's not going to pay for it. He's the one who made the promise. I didn't make the promise. You didn't make the promise. We, in fact, had a different, you know, understanding of this, which is you say, okay, we're, we have this thing that's going on. We're making choices every, every day you make a choice. If you're going to privilege attempting to mitigate the virus over returning back to normal, that's a choice. That's a deliberate policy, medical health, you know, psychological national mood decision and Biden is paying for the choice he made, which is that he kind of didn't really make the choice or essentially went with the entropic and therefore ultimately degrading idea that what we need to do is defeat the virus before we really move on. And it turns out I think that was a mistake based on the response of the very people that voted for him we're not talking about people who voted for Trump who aren't going to like him and aren't going to like anything that he does or are going to give him or are going to have to grudgingly say they like what he does if what he does is successful. The issue here involves the people who do like him or did like him or did vote for him who are saying he has not done what he said he was going to do. And instead, he spent three months talking about, you know, infrastructure about uh, the social infrastructure bill. Or even, or even talking about Afghanistan. I mean, think about it that way. Afghanistan becomes a consuming national issue for two months. He made it that. 
Talk about taking your eye off the ball. Like, it's like, you know what? We probably need to deal with Afghanistan, but maybe we don't deal with it until we've got COVID under control. Because I said my presidency was about getting COVID under control. But the second order effects of the virus are what I think the people in the focus group are talking about. They're talking about the economy. They're talking about all the supply chain issues. They're talking about the things in their daily lives that they see as kind of fallout from the overall effects of the lockdowns and the shutdowns and the slowdown of our economy over the last almost two years now from COVID. So I think when when Biden said, I'm going to shut down, you know, I'm not going to shut down the country, I'm going to shut down the virus. They heard that as a much broader message and looked to their daily lives no longer being imposed upon by this virus that we that that thankfully is is you know on the decline after this most recent wave Biden seems to be talking about it once he got power as I'm doing these specific policies that my public health professionals tell me I should do. He's not seeing the bigger picture that the average American is seeing. And he's trying to kind of cordon off these various things, which is why the virus becomes a useful excuse making device for him when it comes to the economy. But that's not how Americans see it. This, it's all connected, at least in our right. daily experience. Yeah, these mitigation measures are a means to an end, the end being the resumption of normal life, the status quo ante, the assumption that the pandemic is is over and that this coronavirus has become just another coronavirus that we can live with. They don't talk about that anymore. I don't hear anybody talking on the in the on within the administration and among its its uh you know apologists in the press and supporters, what have you, they don't talk about the end of this pandemic anymore. They talk about the mitigation measures. And presumably if you're if you think Joe Biden isn't focused on what you want him to focus on and the pandemic is your chief issue, wouldn't you want him to focus on the end of the pandemic as opposed well, to the strategy a, to get yes. there, which we kind of lose where the actual end game is? But I want to combine that with what Christine said, and you can see the continuing political, I mean, I wouldn't call it a catastrophe yet, but sort of the political dead end that he's walked himself down, which is that if he says, yeah, yeah, the job numbers are bad because of COVID, the 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 obvious corollary question is, well, what are you doing about it? You said you were going to defeat the virus. And you're saying, oh, I'm sorry, like our job numbers are bad because I haven't defeated the virus yet. I should have defeated the virus, but I didn't defeat the virus. Similarly, when the medical health professionals that we're supposed to trust who are walking us out of this basically say that the things that we're recommending we cannot guarantee are going to have a positive consequence in the very near future. We can't know that. We can't know whether your kids can trick or treat. We can't know what your Thanksgiving is going to be like. We can't know what your Christmas is going to be like. All that reinforces the idea that Washington has failed and Biden is Washington. Like, it's almost as though because the political class remains as fixated as it is on Trump, it does not understand that every day they focus on these fights and calamities and COVID this and da da da, you know, schools and fights at school boards and all of that, and everything that is so unnerving to everybody. It all serves as an indictment of Biden. I mean, if people are having fights at school boards and Merrick Garland is saying, you know, we need to have a task force to investigate whether or not somebody standing up at a at a school board meeting is a hate crime, the fact that someone's standing up at a school board meeting to talk about masking 18 months into this epidemic 
speaks to Biden's claim that if he became president, this is not where we would be on this date if he won. Um, I, I think it would be worse for him if it weren't for the fact that, and this is a sad fact for everyone, um, people have gotten terribly used to this, to, to, the, to the pandemic generally now. I think the, the everyone's expectations have been so significantly lowered about getting out of this and returning to some version of normal and, and um, uh, I don't know, you know, sort of sort of seeing life the way it used to be again, that I think there's al- almost no one expects to, to, to have to, for there to be truly effective policy at this point. Well, I mean, you know, that's the point, which is that maybe there can't be truly effective policy. The problem is that Democrats, when they run for government, say, I'm going to do all of these things, and then I'm going to do them, and everything is going to get better. And if things don't get better, they were the ones who promised to do these things to make you better. And if you don't get better, it's like you went to the doctor, and he took blood, and he gave you a shot, and he made you take a stress test. And after all of this is done and you're exhausted and you're in pain and you and you've had all this, you know, and you're like staying at home and all this. And then he says, I'm sorry, I just you know what? It's kind of mysterious. I don't really have a diagnosis for you. I mean, that that is. So who do you is it like, oh, gee, I'm sorry, doctor. I really thanks so much for trying. <laughs> like, that's not the attitude that you would have under those circumstances. Well, and, and he's, Republicans he's... at least say. You know, we want to be in charge so we can get obstacles out of your way, right? That is the general difference between the two parties is the Republicans say, we're here to clear obstacles out of your way that are put there by regulation or busy by whatever it is. And and Democrats are, we are going to build ramps and roads and off and, and you know, and um, and bypasses to make your life easier and to make things move more smoothly and if that doesn't happen, what's their their answer can't be, well, Trump is standing there giving a rally in Iowa. Blame him. But that but see, he's trapped Biden is kind of trapped in the in the rhetor- the rhetorical device he embraced successfully as a as a presidential candidate, which was Trump's argument about the virus was it's a virus. There's only so much we can do. We did the vaccine, but you know, beyond that, it's a virus. I can't do much more. Biden's argument was, as 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 uh, Abe noted, I'm going to fix it all, and uh, it, it, because a virus can be controlled by technocratic expertise. So when it proved, and we have long scoffed at that idea, and in fact spent a great deal of our daily podcast during lockdown talking about how the technocratic expertise has failed the American people over and over again. Some of it hasn't, but some has. So now Biden, in order to kind of get ahead of this COVID argument that's clearly uh, enraging even his own voters, has to be able to say some version of what Trump himself was saying throughout the election, which is, it's a virus, there's only so much we can do, but here's our plan. And he can't do that. I mean, certainly his public health professional uh, and the technocratic elite that controls CDC and otherwise not going to let him do that easily. But he needs to. I mean, that's kind of what the American people are waiting for him to acknowledge, is the, the kind of reality of the situation. I mean, also the thing about that acknowledgement also means so we have to move forward and and sort of deal with life, uh, you know, and in, in, incorporate 
this into into the rest of our lo- our days. You know, uh, it be, we're not going to be magically delivered from this uh, in one fell swoop or at one moment. It's it's going to be an element in in our lives. Let me give you just an example of how certain types of public messaging or the way for the president can presidency can be used could work. So there is this question about home testing. Right? Europeans have all these home tests. You know, basically it's some kind of a litmus, literally a litmus test. You lick a thing, it tells you whether you have COVID, you stay home or you don't stay home. There are excess tests in England and, you know, all over the EU. We don't have them. Something happened. The FDA doesn't want to approve them. There's worries about false positives or, you know, or, or inefficient negatives. Whatever, whatever system here interfered with this, there have been people who have been talking about it for more than a year desperately, Michael Mina of Harvard in particular. You're Joe Biden and you're president. There is a problem with the bureaucratic system that is releasing these home tests. The home tests are one mitigation strategy out of COVID, which is to say, no, you don't have to wear masks at school. What you have to do is every day lick a sheet of paper, and if you have, if it comes up positive, you stay home. Everybody else licks the piece of paper. They go to school. Nobody has to wear a mask because nobody has COVID. Like, right? Here's the messaging. The messaging is sources tell the New York Times that Biden is furious at the FDA's inaction on home testing. Sources say that Ron Klain, the White House chief of staff, is calling the leaders of the FDA, the CDC, and the National Institutes of Health on the carpet in a meeting at 2.30 today to say, why the hell don't we have these home tests by Monday? Sources say that Joe Biden, who loves to set deadlines, is setting a deadline of October 31st for there to be a billion home tests available to Americans. Okay, that is no policy is being made. Nothing is happening that contravenes the system. Nothing like that. But when you're willing to say sources say that the White House is worried that that uh, Border Patrolmen are using whips that don't exist, though, though that same methodology could be used in stories to say Biden is taking steps behind the scenes to make American life better and to come up with mitigation strategies that will help people and they don't do it they don't do it because they're actually not focused on this at all it's funny that you mentioned immigration because i'm drilling down on that today we talked about this uh quinnipiac number the other day that found biden got his lowest marks from voters on immigration and the border crisis respectively and is losing fully half of democrats on both of those issues And you can see why, because this administration has been complying with the law insofar as they have to comply with the law, which means temporary housing, which means very slow processing, which means separating families at the border, all this stuff that Democrats hate. And then when they apply the full force of the law, Joe Biden attacks his own executive agencies for doing so. Um, all while canceling border wall contracts and doing his best to you know, be, be the dove that he promised to be, giving literally everybody who isn't just a blind partisan on the left a reason to hate the administration. If you have even a semblance of objectivity with you and, and actually have a policy preference that you want to pursue, whether you're a dove immigration restrictionist on the left, which do exist, or an immigration dove, you have every reason to hate the administration because they have no coherent policy. 
And when they do have a coherent policy, they blame themselves for the execution of the coherent policy, saying it's it's awful and expect people to say, well, that makes sense. Like you're a victim somehow in this. No, he's the president of the United States. He's the chief executor of these policies and will get blamed for them. Right. Well, so <clears throat> I, I think part of where I started and we kind of pulled away from is the fact that the people who are getting worried are not, it's not us. It's people who are worried that Biden is going to fail and hand the country back to Trump or to the Republicans. Um, Charles Blow, a columnist whom I do not quote often because I consider him intellectually deficient and ideologically contemptible, nonetheless says in the New York Times today or you know came out yesterday, um, even if they succeed in passing both the infrastructure framework and the social spending bill, those investments may come too late to discharge growing satisfaction. An unpopular president with slipping approval numbers is an injured leader with little political capital to burn. Biden is better than Trump, but that's not enough. People didn't just vote for Biden to vanquish a villain. They also wanted a champion. That champion has yet to emerge. This is a yawp, a scream from the void. Like, this is... this is. And and the whole point here is that he's not going to get anything or get credit for anything until American life returns to normal. What credit is he going to get? It's not that you won't say he's at fault, that he made COVID, or even necessarily that he made COVID worse. But he's... But, I mean, the baseline American life has to return to normal for Biden to get credit for being even remotely successful as president. But this this speaks to the competence issue, which we saw in the polling last week, that a lot of people have really grave concerns about his competency as, a, as an administrator, just as an administrator of his own administration. But I think the, the other thing they should be looking ahead to is, I mean, it's bad enough that Fauci is saying you can't, you know, yes, it's okay to trick or treat. But the supply chain issues that are coming through the pipeline, we're already hearing warnings from the post office is saying, Mail your Christmas packages now. I'm like, it's October. I mean, they're already trying to put up these these warning flares to the American people that this is not going to be a regular holiday season, not only because of COVID, but because of all the, again, the second order effects of COVID and all the lockdowns. We have a serious issue with our economy and, and access to labor. And people are, there. all these cargo ships just circling in their ports because there's no one to unload them. There are truck drivers who are totally burnt out because there aren't enough of them on the roads right now. This affects America. Americans' daily lives. And the administration has not spoken to those concerns in months, as far as I know. And by the way, not just Americans' daily lives. Like, there's a political crisis in Britain right now with eerie parallels to our current situation. They have a trucking shortage. There are oil and gas shortages all over the UK because there's no one to drive the trucks to the gas stations. Why would they have the same political uh, socioeconomic disruptions that we're having they have an entirely different relation to covid they have entirely different policies in relation to covid except for one very significant difference which is that and this is something that there was you know bipartisan support for there was unusual amount there was an unusual amount of government direct government subvention and interference in 
the personal economic lives of Americans and Britons and whatever uh, because of the un- incredibly unusual circumstances of the lockdowns that involved levels of support from government of a, of a kind that we, we have never seen before. And if we're sitting here with 11 million job openings, which is what we're told there is, and the unemployment rate has dropped because so many people are no longer looking for work, even though there are all these job openings, something pretty significant may have happened that isn't just the money itself, because the money that people were getting from the federal government ran out last month. I mean, the $300 a week, specific $300 a week coming from the feds, ran out last month. It is that something significant may have happened in the question of the relation of people between, you know, work, pride, um, supporting themselves, supporting their families. This is dimly understood and is obviously has many factors and is an incredibly complicated question. But something that nobody predicted is happening right now, which is that people are willing to pay $30 an hour or even more to do very, very, very unskilled labor, and people aren't biting in these port places, in Savannah, in other places. It is very interesting, and it is not answerable yet why it's happening. But again, it's happening. And what are we talking about in Washington? Whether or not, you know, they need to rush climate change stuff into the reconciliation package because if they don't do it by November 2022, the Republicans will come in and then there won't be sufficient spending on climate change in 2030. While 11 million jobs are, are, are unfilled. There is something wrong going on here in the just simple political calculus of a political organization like the Democratic Party or the or the White House. Like fix the fix the flat tire before you install the electric motor. You have to fix the flat tire. I mean, I, you know, it, it, it's that simple. Even if it's like, well, I, I don't have any means to fix the flat tire. Then it's like, well, experiment. Use dirt, you know, use dirt, use this. I don't know, you know, keep experimenting because until you fix the flat tire, the car isn't going to move. And there, yeah, there, I mean, well, there are a couple flats, at least. Uh, yeah, and, I'm it, sorry. Just, yeah, Abe, continue. But some of them are, are genuinely outside of this White House's control. Like when it comes to the shortage at the ports, it's, you know, it's, it's very complicated and it's not just about the lack of stevedores and longshoremen. You know, there, there's auto parts that are coming in from Asia that are delayed. So you can't fix a chassis. So you can't load a container on a truck. I mean, that's a sort of, that's a supply chain emerging from East Asia, which has everything to do with COVID. And that's not something that the president really can't control. I, I am not suggesting that the president can control it. I am suggesting that he said, vote me in as president and I'm going to fix this. And it isn't fixed, and he's getting blamed. And th- there's no sense in saying this is unfair because he could have made a different promise. I'll restore, well, nor- you know. Anyway, go ahead. 
No, I think I think the issue that speaks most directly to is the crisis at the border where where, you know, Biden before being elected had along with all the other Democrats had sort of pretended that there is this magical solution that that, you know, is that it can just be obtained if we if we get a, a, the right person in office. Um, and it's part and the fact that the crisis not only wasn't resolved, but it got dramatically worse since Biden has been in office that happening simultaneous to um, the administration's sort of failure to get its great ambitions, its 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 great social programs uh, and ambitions uh, uh, passed, I think highlighted the, the it, it kind of really made them and him look quite clownish because he wasn't addressing this, not simple, but this this real uh, uh, real life concern that he had said he would address while going after this pie in the sky stuff and failing to do that at the same time. Right. You know, um, we're talking about the supply chain. Supply chain is something that nobody discussed before COVID hit, unless you were a very, very rigorous, you know, microeconomist talking about what was going on at a specific factory or plant somewhere. Um, And it's now become one of the, you know, one of the uh, prevailing issues of our time. And a person who knows about it, a person who can illuminate you about it every day is David Bonson, uh, our friend who produces that daily newsletter, the dctoday.com, and that weekly newsletter, dividendcafe.com, produced under the auspices of the Bonson Group, his $3 billion financial management and services firm. You will learn more about the daily disruptions in the economic activity of the United States due to supply chain problems if you read the dctoday.com. And on a weekly basis, you will have some, you will get some greater understanding of how all of this has a global, a national impact and a global impact. Um, so by all means, please go to DividendCafe.com and subscribe to both of his newsletters and illuminate, enlighten, and by the way, entertain yourself because it's good writing and often very funny. That's David Bonson's Bonson Group, The Antidote to the Intellectual Spaghetti of the financial management and services industry. Um, so to speak a little bit more about this question of the supply chain, um, I, I what politically what strikes me as interesting is that um, we have people on the left who imagine that they can dip into areas of the economy and futz around with them and make things better, right? I mean, that's sort of like the general idea of regulation, uh, aside from, you know, preserving people's safety and the safety of products and safety of workers and all of that, that 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 um, technocratic intrusion into the good working order of private capital and all of that will have a net positive effect because it will make things function more rationally, more fairly, uh, you know, more smoothly and all of that. And here we have sitting here um, something that is potentially a sort of existential challenge to the good working order of the world economy that things are being exposed, weaknesses, failures, flaws, or problems are being exposed. Um, that I would say, I think it's pretty fair to say, no one who is so self-confident about the glories and wonders of the regulatory state 
or these sort of regulatory frameworks has the foggiest idea what to do about this. I mean, if you are if you believe in technocratic solutions, the supply chain is the ultimate technocratic issue, right? It's the interplay of goods, services, trade, uh, labor, uh, manufacturing, carding, transport. It's you know seventeen things put together, um, in which there have been wild efficiencies achieved over the last thirty to forty years, owing to computerization and and all of that. Um, and yet, maybe we've gone too far. Like maybe the fact is that just in time manufacturing turns out there was a reason for all the redundancy that was replaced by this, which is which is disruptions. And then we don't have any, you know, we uh, there's no there's no give in the supply chain if if there are real disruptions in the supply chain, whatever. I'm just struck by the fact that um, we're standing here talking about minting trillion dollar coins and doing this and what's going to happen. Maybe we should spend 1.8 trillion and we should spend 2.2 trillion and this and that. And basically, we are looking at things, real world things that are happening right in front of us, and the people who just love to futz around are standing there mute, panicked, paralyzed, and impotent. Well, it'd be nice if they were standing there mute, paralyzed, and impotent. They're still talking as though right. they have some authority over the situation, can can grasp it, much less control it, um, which is you know, contributing, I think, probably to a, a crisis of confidence in their capacity to uh, navigate their environments, because it's quite plain that the technocratic set really doesn't have any idea how to address this issue and knows it is beyond their control, but won't say as much because to say as much is to admit the obvious that they don't have as, as uh, they're not as capable as their hubris allowed them to admit. I mean, it, it isn't one issue, right? That's the whole point is it's, it's an interlocking almost. I'm not in, it's obviously not infinite, but I mean, it is a multifarious set of problems Christine. Uh, I was going to say, when they do, uh, to, just to add to what Noah said, when they do actually make an attempt to talk about it, as the Biden administration here and there over the last few months has tried to talk about inflation, they absolutely botch it because they 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 basically give us a denial of what we see in front of us. And there there is a very interesting piece in the New York Times Upshot newsletter uh, today or yesterday about shadow inflation. So it's not just actually the numbers that you can see where the price of gas, the price of chicken or the price of milk rise. It's the fact that the quality of the experience of the goods you're buying starts to decrease as, you know, restaurants who are trying to cut costs because labor costs have gone up or the supply of their food is increased, start to give you half of what you're used to having. The restrooms are not quite as clean because they don't have enough people to clean them. The quality of everyday experience is part of this too. That's why it's called shadow inflation. It's not quantifiable, but the but it's qualitatively experienced by people daily. And that over time adds to this sense of like, why do I, why does life suck so much all of a sudden? Like, why is everything expensive and it's terrible? Yeah. I mean, we're, we're, we're talking about something. I think it's, we're talking about sort of national depression. Uh, and I, I don't mean purely uh, economic, but I mean, uh, psychologically, if we're talking about people not willing to go back to work for money, uh, which itself is uh nationally debilitating reality uh and we're t we're talking about the 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 um sort of worsening of all consumer experience 
Um, and I, this is the, very hard to cycle out of that kind of, you know, deeply ingrained problem. It's, 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 this is not, um, this is not a surface level problem. You know, this is, this is something that's now deep in us. Sarah Longwell, whose uh, focus group we're talking about, used the very loaded term malaise to describe the current. I was cycle. trying to avoid it, yeah. But, but look, yeah, but that is a, that is a, right, it's Jimmy loaded, Carter. obviously. Yeah, it's loaded, obviously, because it was, it was, it, the, the odd thing about the Jimmy Carter malaise speech is that the word malaise doesn't appear anywhere in the speech. And yet, I mean, I, I remember that was the it. takeaway. No, but <laughs> that I was mean, the organic I, I mean, takeaway. I, I, I have, I have very, very vivid memories. I was in college. I was in my second year of college. Uh, I ran a magazine um, uh, at the University of Chicago with my friend Todd Lindbergh, and you know, we basically did an entire issue based on the male- on the Malaise speech, and everybody was calling it the Malaise speech. I'm still not clear. I think because the term Malaise came from. Christopher Lash, whose whose uh, whose book uh, was really the sort of the emotional source, the book who, whose title right now I can't remember. I will look it up and mention it uh, in a minute. Um, but uh, what how this is like the seventies? So the seventies had a real inflation, right? I mean, by by the you know by, by the late seventies, we're talking about you know inflation numbers of a sort we had never seen in the United States. A lot of that was about about specific disruptions in the oil supply, right? Because of first the oil embargo in the, in seventy three, and then the Iranian Revolution in seventy nine, both of which affected the life's blood of the American economy and had this you know terrible effect. But but one of the one of the issues relating to this the kind of um, inflation, the shadow inflation you're talking about is public grubbiness let me see if i can explain what i mean by that when in in the 70s cities all over the country began suffering terrible economic reversals um you know tax receipts went down they also had you know whatever they were doing had they also had to deal with buying oil and supplies at three times you know what it cost the year before and all of that new york famously almost went broke would have gone broke had there not been this uh, very complicated intervention. Cities were on fire, you know, Cleveland, the lake caught on fire. There was all this, these kind of, but the, but the, the thing that is memorable about that time, not just in America, not just in, in New York, which you can see in movies of the day, but like all over the place was a kind of general degradation of public spaces because municipalities and so sort were running out of money to employ the people who did that stuff in part because they were also on a hiring spree to employ people who did lots of other stuff thus giving rise to this great nathan glazer crack that you know cities in the 1960s stopped doing things that they knew very well how to do like pick up the garbage and started doing things that nobody knew how to do like trying to cure poverty and so it's a zero-sum game. If you're going to spend more on trying to cure poverty, you're going to end up spending less on cleaning up the garbage. And and I see not just the, you know, portions of my, you know, Italian food that I order in getting significantly smaller, which I did this weekend, but a general 
kind of grubbiness that then ties into Abe's idea that we are in some kind of an emotional, uh, you know, uh, tr- slough of despond. That um, it's not worth cleaning up. You know, it's sort of like the it's like broken windows before broken windows, which is why someone threw a rock through a window in an empty building. Why even bother cleaning it up? Who cares? I got other things I got to bother myself with. And then if you don't clean up that window, then in three weeks, a hundred windows are shattered and broken and there's glass all over the sidewalks. And the problem is a hundred times worse um, because you didn't intervene at the beginning. And that is the other form of this shadow inflation that not, if it's not nipped in the bud has a contagious aspect to it. But that's sort of, we were talking about the technocratic uh, outlook and the technocratic outlook comes to resent that impulse that you just described, you know, that, that people don't really respond to the kind of top-down solutions that they're talking about, these macroeconomic universal solutions when you're talking about a very block-to-block issue like that. And then the technocratic uh, outlook ultimately comes to resent the people that they're trying to serve because they don't appreciate your your macroeconomic philosophy and how little regard you have for the day-to-day affairs you know that kind of uh, sentimental outlook on your you know your day-to-day life that they don't believe should really have a, a, a an effect a psychological effect certainly not a macroeconomic effect and not a, an effect on crime broadly because you know it's it's so far removed from the violent crime which by the way everybody's trying to to, to talk about in terms that are insane, you know, br- brief digression here is that, you know, the, the line on the part of the left who is desperate to give Joe Biden some sort of ballast is that crime is actually down, you know, you know, you can't, why don't you appreciate the fact that crime is down just this little, little thing like murders by strangers is up the kind of stuff that is absolutely positively chilling that, that terrifies you to the point you don't actually want to go out is up. But yeah, what about, you know, property crime that's not a big deal so why don't you appreciate this you jerks I mean, that's the sort of outlook that eventually overtakes the technocratically inclined uh people who are who we've entrusted to manage our affairs there's also one one other difference i think from the malaise it was uh christopher lash culture of narcissism and daniel bell's cultural contradictions of capitalism he yes. actually brought them to camp david and chatted with them and this was supposed to have influenced his speech but the the difference now, I think, from then is that we have an ascendant progressive wing of the Democratic Party that actually sees this not sees the fact that people don't want to go back to work, not as a bad thing for the country, but as a good sign for humanity. They believe in a universal basic income. They believe many people should have, you know, should be able to choose not to do do jobs that they think are, you know, degrading to them or or don't give them dignity. And this is actually in terms of the plan long term that they would like to see, which is a much, much more socialist style form of economy and government that's that whose safety net is so vast that many people in it will never have to lift a finger if they don't want to. And they'll all be painters and poets, I assume. That is actually a good sign. So there, there's a weird tension that I think didn't exist in, at quite the same level as it did in the 70s. There's an intellectual class that embraces this idea. This, you know, we've seen essays and books written about how great it is that people don't want to work anymore, and and th- there's there's something percolating there that I think is d- unique to our own era that is worth exploring in terms of how it's feeding into this idea that you know work is bad and we shouldn't have to do it. Um. You know, it's enough to make you just want to retreat into your head and listen to some great music. And if you want to do that, let me talk to you about Raycon, our next sponsor. So much going on in the world. 
so much trouble, so much change, so much spilkes. You can't always control the vibes out there, but you can control the vibes in your head with a pair of Raycon wireless earbuds in your ear. Whether you use them to pump up, wind down, work or work out, Raycons are my go-to for on-the-go audio. I use them mostly to listen to podcasts on subways, but you can listen to them. My daughter, who has a pair, listens to them when she is listening to music, and they can be set in three different modes. Pure mode is like podcast listening, blues instrumental, balance mode is for rock and heavy metal, and bass mode is for hip-hop, EDM, reggae, and that sort of thing. The new everyday earbuds look, feel, and sound better than ever with an improved rubber oil look and feel and optimized gel tips for the perfect in-ear fit. These are impressive before you even stop listening, and they give you a bunch of them so that you can figure out which which one fits your ear best. And there's an all-new awareness mode for when you need to listen to your surroundings instead. Eight hours of playtime, 32-hour battery life, a built-in mic, and you can take calls on your earbuds at the press of a button. Raycon started half the price of other premium audio brands, but they sound just as good. And Raycons come with a 45-day happiness guarantee. Right now, commentary listeners can get 15% off their Raycon order at buyraycon.com slash commentary. That's B-U-Y-R-A-Y-C-O-N.com slash commentary to save 15% on Raycons. Buyraycon.com slash commentary. Um, okay. So now that we've depressed everybody, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm struck by the, the fact that, uh, that the chattering classes remain obsessed with Donald Trump in two elements. One is these recreations of what's, of what went on before January 6th and whether there is some secret to be gleaned from the behavior inside the White House over the week prior that is going to unlock a truth about the insurrection and direct presidential or White House involvement in the insurrection that will, I don't know, change the course of history. Um, And the other is a kind of eagerness on the part of the mainstream media to anoint Trump the head of the Republican party now and the person who will control the Republican party in the future. And the reason I think these two are, are interesting and contradictory is I don't see any evidence or indication on the basis of the way Trump is behaving right now and what he says, what he said in Iowa and all of that, that he has any real interest in being the leader of the Republican party in the present or even in the near future in the way that we imagine leaders of parties are leaders, meaning he wants them to advance certain policies. He wants them to advocate for certain aims or to attack things in certain ways or to do whatever like that. His focus is very narrow. It is, I really won. You keep saying that. I'm going to attack anybody who doesn't say it. I'm going to do what I can to make sure that this commission doesn't get its hands on information about what I was saying before that, and you just stand there and keep cheering me. There seems to be no real larger purpose to his continuing political life except his own desire to relitigate the 2020 election, which is not going to go well for him in any practical sense. 
by which I mean nothing is going to happen that is going to prove to anybody that he won unless you've already decided magically that he won and it was stolen. So the continuing game here, you know, I understand the polling says that Republicans say that he's, you know, a lot of people say the election was stolen and all of that. But in general, if he's the leader of the Republican Party, the Republican Party has no future as as an as a coalition of ideas or countervailing forces to liberalism or whatever because he's totally divorced himself from any any interest in any of that as far as i can tell am i well it has the practical effect of freezing the race right i mean nobody nobody's going to jump out in front now nobody wants to peak too early and it's, it's still very early obviously in the 2024 cycle though it is the 2024 cycle um but by making that the central issue, you know, an up or down referendum on whether or not uh, Donald Trump was robbed of his cosmic due. And to the extent that we hear anybody addressing this, it is in the affirmative. It is, yes, he was robbed. And yes, we do agree with this nonsensical idea that the, the, the election was stolen from him somehow without elaborating on that much further. I mean, it does essentially keep the Republican Party from maturing post-Trump keep it from embracing a set of ideas that are just not being, uh, you know, whatever the left likes, we don't. Um, it has, you know, essentially kept the Republican Party in a set of, in a, a state of stasis from, you know, January 6th. Except it's not in a state of stasis, right? I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of actual ferment going on when it comes to Republicans and elections. We have Glenn Youngkin trying to sort of uh, you know, maneuver through this maze of what you say not not to alienate Trump people while trying to make sure that independents and suburbs in Virginia will vote for you in sufficient numbers that you can win the election. That's a jump ball. We have stuff going, complicated stuff going on in Washington. We have we had 19 Republican senators vote for the infrastructure bill. We had 11 Republican senators vote for the vote for the uh, uh, budget ceiling compromise thing um you know it's not like life isn't moving on and that biden isn't being challenged in different ways both by sort of the facts on the ground and by politicians it's that trump himself is is siloed it's a large silo that is casting a large shadow but he is I mean, once not... you're liberated from inter-party politics, though, I mean, once you're liberated from a primary, take a look at how the Ohio primary for U.S. Senate is shaping up, and you can see that the central issue seems to be the extent to which a candidate will be clown themselves and act uh, in ways that are uh, very indecorous uh, in order to appeal to the most enlivened part of the Republican base, which is very Trumpy. I mean, once you get past that, maybe you can change your spots, but that's that's the state of the race right now. It is the extent to which you declare and display fealty to the myths surrounding Donald Trump's election laws. Yeah, I mean, I mean, to John's point about the, the future of, of the party as a, a party of ideas, it's feeding into Trump's idea of, of, of party leadership, which is, you know, as you say, is just a you know, question of getting support for himself. He has made it. It's it's the GOP will be sort of party of one idea, which is um, don't believe or trust in anything. Don't 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 
don't take any institution uh, or any um, um, uh, representative of the establishment at face value. Everyone's full of it. Every system is broken. Nothing. Everyone is trying to screw you. Um, it is. It is this one idea, which is. I don't I don't trust you and I don't trust I don't I don't believe in what's happening. And by the way, this is feeding into the depression that we're talking about. Uh if you don't if you don't have faith in anything going on around you and in any of the institutions and in the pro, if you never think you're getting a square deal, why go to work? You know, why right. what 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 is it all for kind of thing? I mean, look, the oddity is that right now the passion among people like this, from what I can tell in a lot of fellow travelers, is this vaccine mandate, the evils of vaccine mandates thing. And it's terrible, and vaccine mandates are terrible, and you see this kind of Trumpist in, in intelligentsia going bananas on this subject on Twitter and stuff like that, and, and, and these fights and stuff going on. And in uh, you know, and by the end of October, eighty percent of Americans over the age of twelve will 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 likely have gotten one of two shots, which means that twenty percent of the population will have then basically refused to get to get uh, vaccinated, right? And then so that's twenty percent of the of the adult population or the population over twelve will have refused to get vaccinated. Of which one now can probably guess that 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 those numbers are disproportionately Republican in number. So, and Republicans make up twenty nine percent or something like that of the electorate, maybe thirty, maybe twenty seven. I mean, I don't even remember. So, forty percent of Republicans or something like that will be part of this. How dare you with vaccine mandates thing? But it's only 40%. It's not 80%. It's not 90%. Most people are doing the rational thing here and are behaving in a rational manner and aren't Alan West, who is who got COVID and is saying, I'm so proud that I didn't take the vaccine so I can take monoclonal antibodies. Because I'm taking monoclonal antibodies, which are curing me of the COVID. The vaccine wouldn't have stopped me from getting COVID. And pharmaceutical companies are profiting off COVID. Like, it costs $3,000 to get a monoclonal antibody treatment. And the COVID vaccine costs (laughs) $75 or something. So I'm just saying, like, there is this world of people who think this way. But if the Republican Party orients itself entirely in that direction, it will be like lemmings going off the cliff. It doesn't it, – it, this is not how even the mainstream of the party feels about the vaccines and stuff like that. That is the distortive effect of Trump's – where Trump is and whether or not we're sitting here – thinking that nothing is ever going to change in relation to him. And if you ask me right now, if I had to bet a thousand dollars, I would bet he will be the nominee in 2024. So I'm not, I'm not getting going off that, but, um, but he is speaking things to a minority of people who are less and less relevant in the debate over what's going on in the United States. Well, you would have said the same thing about the progressive left after Joe Biden won the nomination. No, I wouldn't. Really? I would have. I wouldn't have. definitively determined that they were not the 
animating force uh, at the base of the party and then pivoted directly towards making them the animating force at the base of the Republican Party. But the Democratic Party. Yeah, but I, I don't. I, I'm sorry, I, Democratic Party. I, I, look, the simple fact of the matter is that there are 93 members of the Progressive Caucus in the House. Um, and uh, uh, moderates yelled at them in that famous meeting that we got leaks out of after the election about how stressing defunding the police and stuff like that killed them and made them lose a bunch of seats. And the problem there is that uh, they, what did they care? They were still in the majority and they, you know, in, in some ways, you know, the funny part about these things is uh, if Democrats had a 50 seat majority, the progressives would be far less powerful, right? It helps to have 93 people in out of 220 as opposed to 93 people out of 260. Those 93 count a lot more in the smaller pool. If you're Nancy Pelosi, it makes your life a lot harder. And if you're Biden, it makes your life a lot harder. But it doesn't make, you know, Pramila Jayapal's job any harder. It makes it a lot easier, I guess. Anyway, I don't know. I Look, polarization is a very hard subject to deal with. I'm just struck by the fact that Trump made this speech on Saturday, and I don't see that he did anything, you know, he sounds like a monomaniacal focused obsessive, uh, you know, on a very specific thing that is a weird thing to obsess over forever because it's dependent on something happening that cannot happen, which is somehow the election being overturned. I mean, I, you know, it just doesn't make sense in some fundamental way that this is well, it makes what sense he's doing if your goal is power. But it, it makes sense if your goal is to keep that core group of loyalists extremely angry and focused on the thing you want them focused on, which is how you were, you know, robbed. I mean, that makes sense. It's 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 fan service. Yeah, but what do you get from it? Revenge. What did against Donald Trump get whom? out of winning the election in 2016? Revenge. Yeah. Against everybody. Sh- everybody who doubted him. Everybody who laughed at him. But right everybody now. Everybody who thought he wasn't a serious political force. Yeah. But right now, I don't see what he gets out of it. That's what I'm saying. I don't see what he's getting out of this. Well, he still feels nice relevant and powerful. People... I mean, if he feels relevant, he feels powerful. He's still pissing right. off the left, pardon the expression. Um, you know, he's still he's still getting the reaction from the people he dislikes. Uh, and I, I agree with Noah. I think he's out for he wants he's out for revenge. He's just angry. Anyway, I just think it's an interesting moment where you can see, as we see, you know, to to tie this up in a ribbon. Um, Biden is in real trouble at a, at a very early stage in his presidency, right? And it's a relatively conventional. It's not like Trump being in trouble in 2017. Trump had the most unconventional presidency in American history, and things were going on that had never happened before, and everybody was walking around going, what the hell is going on here and all of that. And Biden is like a conventional, weak president, you know, with, you know, party's got control of this and that, but it's not that strong. And he's, you know, his sea legs are wobbly and all of that. And it's a very conventional presidency with conventional political problems. And he is on the ropes. And Trump is doing absolutely nothing if he wants to run in 2024 or help or help the Republicans, like, deliver the coup de grace against biden he's really not doing much to to help that along maybe they're lucky that that's the case because it can happen without him and therefore 
he will eventually seem much less relevant. Um, but, uh, but, you know, Biden's in, Biden's in a lot of trouble here and he's going to be president for another three years and three months or something like, I don't even understand, you know, if he doesn't pull himself out of this nosedive, I don't really understand what the presidency is going to look like. Like most presidents didn't go this, you know, go this far off the rails this early. (laughs) You know, I mean, it's just, uh, I mean, even Trump got the, you know, Trump got the tax cut, even though he screwed everything else up in 2017. Anyway. We have hit the we have hit the hour mark, so we will we will let you uh, go with apologies for my uh, my extreme loquaciousness, and we'll talk to you tomorrow for Abe, Christina, No, I'm John Bodhorowitz. Keep the candle burning.